You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Marcel, who is a wealth advisor at Father, where he advises startup founders and early stage employees on holistic wealth management solutions. He enjoys being a part of his client's wealth creation journey, from starting a business to navigating a potential exit, as well as strategizing the best and most efficient ways to leave a legacy for the next generation. Prior to joining the Father team, he spent most of his career as an investment advisor at Goldman Sachs, advising entrepreneurs, public executives, and nonprofit organizations. He started his career as a financial analyst at BlackRock. Marcel was born and raised in Germany and moved to the States at 19 to attend Drexel University. All right, now let's start this amazing episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Marcel, I'm super excited for you to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, this is a great episode that our audience is going to learn a lot from. Why? Because we have so many entrepreneurs, so many founders, so many early investors that listen to the show that might really be able to benefit from today's episode based on all the questions that we keep getting submitted to us. So we did a little bit of your intro in the pre-show reel, but for our audience, Marcel, can you give a, a little background of your career up until this point? Yeah. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I know we've talked a lot about it and you've had some very interesting and a very successful guests. So I'm honored to be on there. And a little background about myself. As you know, I'm from Germany originally, grew up in a small town in Bavaria, spent all my childhood there and through high school, and then ended up moving to the States for college and ended up at a school called Drexel University in Philadelphia. What really intrigued me by that program was the co-op program. Not sure if, if the audience know what that is, but basically you go to school for six months, you have internships for six months until you kind of graduate. And, and it was a great experience, especially as an international student, you get your education experience, but you also get some work experience. And I was very fortunate. I had internships with JP Morgan, BlackRock, and then Goldman Sachs. And ultimately, after college, I started working at BlackRock, then Goldman Sachs Wealth Management, where I spent most of my career. And now I am a wealth advisor at Farther. And you said wealth advisor at Farther. What is Farther? What do you guys do? What's your focus? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very exciting. Farther is a first of its kind wealth management firm where we combine cutting edge technology with really expertise and personal touch of the traditional wealth management business. And we're actually backed by Bessemer Venture Partners, which most of our listen- listeners know. And we're in the process of closing Series A, which there should be announcements soon. So be on the lookout. Very exciting. And the growth has been great. You know, Last year, we grew our assets under management 20x, and we tripled our employee and, and advisor headcount. So, so a lot of growth. Some interesting background. I actually met the founder and chief technology officer, Brad Genzer, when I worked at Goldman. He was there at the same time. And an interesting story, I was, I'd been there for about four years and I'm sitting in an advisor training program and Brad walks in and he gives a little background and he was telling us he studied mechanical engineering at West Point, two tours in Iraq, actually was awarded two bronze stars. And then he went on to MIT, where he had a double dual major, master in mechanical engineering and an MBA. So that alone was already mind-blowing, right? Really interesting guy. But then he talked about how technology should be used more often and in creating efficiency, especially for advisors as they engage with clients and prospective clients. 
And he was really passionate about it. So funny enough, you know, four years later, I end up at Farther, which he co-founded. So, so that's a little bit of an interesting story. And so that's kind of what, what, what Farther is. My team specifically, we work with startup founders and employees, early stage employees. I enjoy really being part of their wealth creation journey from early on and kind of guide them through their wealth creation stages of their professional life and personal lives. And you know, when you look at founders, everybody's very hyper-focused on their business. That's their goal. That's their achievement. And that's what they're focusing on. But I, I think talking early to them and kind of creating goals early, what do you want to achieve? When do you want to exit? What's the goal here really? And really help them, you know, don't make any mistakes, especially on a, on, on a taxation basis, right? This is really what, how would be helpful in the, in the beginning to founders. And when, when you look at early stage employees, they're somewhat in a similar situation. They typically have equity options. They have equity shares. So they're kind of like a business owner too. And a lot of the discussions I have with them is really about educating them about equity options, risk management. And then also optimizing the, the after-tax proceeds. If there is a liquidity in the event in the future, and how to manage the money after, right? Get them to their goals. So I know that that was a long, long answer, but I, it was important to mention all that. No, what I really like is how you pretty much kind of explained everything I really want to dive into in this interview with the early employees, early investors, the founders, the equity, they're creating wealth throughout this journey, kind of that process. So I mean, let's let's go back a little bit and talk about kind of as the company grows, kind of that exit, when they should talk to you. So I know in a merger acquisition, in an event where they're looking for that exit, there's a couple processes where it's, you know, creating the data room, creating the market material, going out, marketing it, find the investors, due diligence close, six to nine months. Where in that phase is it too late to talk to you or where should they be talking to you if they're an early employee, founder, early investor, when they have equity in this company? And it's not necessarily the company that's going from start to going public, but maybe it's just a company that, because most companies do get acquired, that's their exit. Maybe it's in that acquisition process. Basically, my question for you is, when should someone start to talk to you when there's a potential liquidity event on the horizon? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think when you look at business owners, right, it, you know, it can be, it should be as soon as possible, really, right? When you look at an exit, you got to you got to really find out why do I want to exit and what comes next. So, so engaging with a tax advisor and wealth advisor early to figure out why am I even selling, right? Ask yourself those questions. Why do you want to sell? Why do you want what, what do you want to do after selling, right? What about the family members, succession plan? What do I want to do with my wealth, right? Uh, do I want to donate some to char- charity, retire, acquire another business, make lifestyle purchases, maybe a nice boat and a nice vacation home, right? Uh, these questions are all important, really. And, and we, we want to engage early to really ask those questions, set up a structure, and really create a financial plan. What happens if this happens and can we achieve those goals? And for all the and the answers of those questions we just went through, and then we kind of can figure out a number too, right? Like what should be the exit value uh, and the, the the money that I get after taxes, and really really dive into the financial planning. And I think it's important to be part of that whole process and, and engage early. I think the most important part is really create an advisory board around you, right? Especially as a business owner, I know Sean, you you deal with a lot with middle market business owners. They've had their business for a long time. It's a very emotional time really talk about even an exit. 
So it's important to start early, create a, a trusted advisory board around you, typically consists out of a CPA, you have a lawyer, wealth manager, valuation expert, uh, insurance person, then obviously investment banker. And, and so you have a really good team around you. And then typically one person out of that advisory team kind of takes a lead and kind of has the, the bird's eye view of how everything is looking, are we achieving the goals? And so it's really important. There is no specific answer of when it's really important to start early. But let's say in the M&A process that you mentioned, I think the latest you should engage with a tax advisor or a trust and state lawyer and a wealth manager is probably a year before an exit, just so you can, can implement some of these interesting strategies to mitigate taxes and really achieve your goals. You said a year before. Definitely want to ask, maybe even later, or if you want to cover it now, what happens if you wait till three months, six months and that? But before even that, you really talked about this team, you talked about an accountant, you talked about a lawyer. What questions should you ask them to make sure that they're right for working with you, that they're right for this situation? First off, really, it's a really important to interview multiple firms and advisors, right? I think what I see a lot is that people know someone or they have a cousin or an uncle that is one of these advisors or know somebody in their hometown. And good referrals are always good, but I think having a diverse set of advisors to interview is really important because there's different aspects and I think different viewpoints. So it's important that you have interviews with a lot of different advisors. And ideally, you want to go in this process of creating a relationship with an advisor that's kind of lasting for a lifetime, right? You want to establish trust. Dealing with the process of M&A and also managing your wealth, it's all about trust. I think communication and service is really, really important. And it's something that, you know, at far again, technology is really helping us so I can spend a lot of time with our clients. And I think I'm a big believer in that you can't be an expert in everything, right? So having experts in certain fields is really important and ask them, do you have a specific expertise in what I'm trying to do here, right? That, that's really important. And you now some questions maybe to ask is, what is your experience in working in similar situations? What access do I have to you? Communication, again, is key. You want somebody to really hold your hand during the process, give you unbiased advice. What does your team look like, right? Talk about the firm. Again, fees. Fees are important. You want to want to see how they charge fees and what value do you provide for your fees? And then really, what can I expect from that relationship to look like? like? So you map out really, hey, how am I interacting with you? What is it going to cost me? And at the end of the day, what value do I get out of this relationship? I like that. I like that whole, what value do I get out of this relationship? That's a pretty powerful statement. So could you go and a little bit deeper into, you did mention fees, how they got paid. What are typical fees for wealth managers, for tax strategists? What should people kind of expect going in? Or is it everything so different you have no idea? Yeah, no, I can give you a general idea. It, it always depends, right? And I'm going to say this a lot, but it is really specific to an individual's situation. But when, when you look at wealth managers, typically they're paid like an annual fee of the assets that they manage. And in terms of fees charged by the other team members, really, it's you have a CPA, Fees have ranged what I've seen really from $300 an hour to like a thousand plus, depends on how big the firm is, experience and so forth, and complexity, obviously. Trust and estate lawyers also charge typically by the hour. I've seen fees ranging around $500 per hour to also a thousand plus. Again, depends on the complexity. Okay. So could be simple, could be complex, case by case basis, deal by deal basis, or, or I guess individuals by individual basis. What about, we haven't really gone in yet to any of the tax strategies or ways to implement um, things. Could you kind of 
And I'm sure, yes, it's, it is case by case, but in general, what are some of the tax strategies that can be done and what are the pros and cons of each of them? Yeah. So, so Sean, there's a number of, of different strategies really you can implement. Like you said, it, it depends on the specific situation. What type of business is it? What do the financials look like? Transaction value. And I mentioned earlier, family situation. And you have kids, grandkids, you want to give to charities. So those are some, some factors. But I think I'll go through a couple that I've seen that are kind of most common with, with our clients. And one is an easy one, really. Establishing residency in a state where there's no income tax before a transaction happens, right? You live in California, very high state income tax up to like 12 to 13%. So that, that's a big chunk that can get out of the transaction value, right? So establishing a resin, residency in advance of a transaction is really important. That said, you want to, you know, want, want to learn the state rules of what it takes to establish residency and really get that residency status for tax purposes. Another really common strategy is if you want to pass money to the next generation and minimize estate taxes, which are about 40% at grantor retained annuity trust, we call it GRAT, is, is a pretty common solution. Pretty much there is an estate tax exemption, and it's currently at around $12 million. So any assets up to $12 million can pass you to the beneficiaries, kids, tax-free. Anything over is um, you have to pay the, the state, state estate tax Sorry, uh, for 40%. So let me walk you through a little example of how a GRAT looks like. There's also something called the GRAT hurdle rate, which is currently at 3%, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example and it kind of makes sense. So, so let's say you have you create a, a structure of a GRAT of two years, right? And you put in $10 million of pre-IPO stock. We say the IRS hurdle rate is around 3%. After two years, that stock of $10 million, let's say the company goes IPO, all of a sudden the stock in that trust is worth $30 million. So because this is really an annuity, the $10 million plus the 3% annualized on that $10 million goes back to the grantor. But that gain, the $30 million minus that amount, the other amount, is going to the beneficiary tax-free. So it's a very common strategy. You, you see this a lot with business owners. You see this a lot with people that you know go pre-IPO stock. Any asset that really has a high potential for appreciation, this is very helpful. You want to have higher growth than that 3% hurdle rate. And then lastly, this is another really common one is, is really when our clients are charitably inclined. There's something called a charitable remainder unit trust. We call it CRUT. Could be a good solution. And let me walk you through an example. If a business owner has a low cost basis interest in their company, he can move, he or she can move that stock, that, that business interest into a CRUT. And when you set when then the sale happens, there is no taxes due, no capital gains taxes due. So then the cash is in that uh, charitable trust, and you actually get a tax deduction on, on that immediate tax deduction for your income return. The assets in the trust will then be invested in a diversified portfolio, and it's a taxable annuity to the owner. So there's a provided income stream that's either lifetime or set for a certain term of years. And then at the termination of the trust, the remaining assets pass to the charity of your choice. So as you can see, the, the strategy is really about deferred growth, right? Or deferred taxes. And I've seen it a lot too, not just business owners, but some of our clients, they have low cost basis cryptocurrency, or they have low cost cost basis stock options or equity in a company where strategy is really helpful. You know, there's a lot of information out there and people read about it and people bring it up a lot to me, but I think it's important. There's a lot of mistakes you can make. So it's important to really bring in your CPA, your wealth advisor, and a trust and estate lawyer. Get in the experts because again, Every situation is a little different and you want to get the most value out of this and, and don't make any mistakes. 
that was interesting. You said this could be done with crypto as well. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it because you know cryptocurrency has had a great ride over the past years, right? So a lot of the people that were early investors in crypto they have a low cost basis, so it's a good way to minimize the capital gains tax, put it into one of those trusts, then you sell it and you diversify your risk too. If if you have a high exposure to crypto, okay. I mean, the example with the putting the shares that was fascinating. There was uh, another thing that that was mentioned with moving to a state with low low or no income taxes. Now, does that have to be done a year, two years before? Does that have to be done? Say you're issued stock because your employee won. Do you have to do it before you get those shares issued? Like what's kind of a timeline look like for you to actually be able to take advantage of that? Yeah. So it depends on on the state. Some of them, you have to be in the state for six months to establish residency, sometimes a year, but it's not when you exercise the stock options, really when the exit happens, when you liquidate. So again, that's why I said in the M&A process, like a year before is really important that you get uh, some advice, a tax advisor, wealth manager, because it's it's up to the state, really. You got to do some due diligence. That's just kind of crazy to think about it. Just by moving to state, I mean, maybe if this is your big exit, this is your retirement, you could basically, it's almost like getting a 12% increase on the price, or maybe even more if you think about it, just by you know, relocating. And I'm guessing, am I? maybe I'm wrong. If I were to move to a tax-friendly state, live there for a certain amount of time, then I could move back and not pay the taxes on that gain, correct? As long as I'm within the rules and regulations of citizenship state by state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, when you look at big numbers, right, for that, let's say 13% on 100 million, that's $13 million, you can buy a place, let's say in Florida, but you can still go back home, right? You just have to have the main residency in Florida. And I think that's an important, but you can go back and forth. And especially now with everyone working from home with the ability to get up, well, we're almost at the point where we can hop on planes again and travel. It just seems like your home base could almost be be anywhere. It's, it's it's incredible just thinking that. Okay, okay, okay. So I came to you before the transaction, a year or two before. Great, you helped me out. Things are good. But my friend over here, he doesn't think so far in advance. You know, we started the company same day. He was employee five. I was employee six. Transaction closed. It already happened. I was prepped. You know, I talked to a wealth advisor, tax advisor, everyone else. You talked to. Things were great. He didn't. He decided to wait to the last minute. Is he out of luck? Like, does he have any options, or what happens there? Yeah, it, it's never too late. There's obviously still stuff we can do, but I think the biggest uh, advantage of doing it early before a transaction is really typically you have a low cost basis, right? So you have a big gain, and as you can see, those strategies are really tax mitigating on those big gains. So kind of missed out on that, but then the real wealth management part really starts, right? Now you have let's say ten million dollars in cash. What to do next? Business owners have worked very hard, right? A lot of their net worth was tied up in the business, and now they have actually liquidity. So I think you know what we really focus on as advisors is being stewards of that client's wealth now. And it's really you made all this money through that transaction, and now it's really time to protect it and grow it for the next generation and build a legacy, right? So really, the investment process now really starts. And when you look at you know cash management, let's say you have the ten million. Let's do some cash management options. 
leg into the market over a period of time to diversify some risk, and then really provide investment advice, create portfolios ranging from, again, cash management to alternative investing, finding the right risk tolerance, right, to really protect the assets, but then also take put some growth assets into some, some structure uh, where you want to have the, the high growth um, assets in. It's almost interesting. It kind of seems like one that even though they built their business and exited, now the, the wealth management, wealth growing process almost seems like the next business that they could work on that they could grow. Do, do you get people that come to you and I mean, they just can't sit still, they can't retire and they're trying to learn every bit about this process after? I, I'm, I'm wondering because you know, later I, I got a couple of questions about where there's some problems, but I just kind of want to piggyback on what you just mentioned there going from that exit to now it's time to build wealth. What type of mindset change is there for those business owners when they come to you? It's tough because, you know, as a business owner, you're always, you are the president of the company, you're in charge, right? So then stepping back, I think people, people still want to be in charge. People have been in charge for a long time. So there's two kind of camps. There are some people that, okay, I got this money now. It's time to retire and enjoy life. And we manage, as a wealth manager, we manage all the money. But then there's people that want to be involved. And some people want to start other businesses too, right? There's two sides, really. Some clients are very involved. And again, it's important to look at their balance sheet, like track the whole balance sheet, helping our clients invest into other ventures, right? But it's really important that you don't want to go from owning a business and kind of, we set all these goals, why you want to sell your business. We set all that up already. Now, if you go in the next venture, then you're in the same boat again. So it's important to really follow. And I think that's the issue you have sometimes. Business owners flip-flop a little bit. There's a lot of emotions involved. They can't sit still. So it's really important to, to remind them of, of the goals that we set. But you, you want to definitely do some risk diversification because now it's liquidity is here. But you also don't want them to go back to putting ninety percent of liquidity in a business again and redoing it. Some people do it; they can't sit still. Some people are just just wired that way. And they, but our, our goal again, if they want to do it, then we're going to help them again, right? It's it's really conversational. Advisors should give clients the numbers, take out the emotions, and then we make a decision together. Really, right? Okay. Now, other than waiting too long, the other employee at my fictitious company did. What other mistakes are most common when they come to you? What, what else do you hear? Yeah, I think, and you can probably relate to this. I think it's a, being emotional, right? And flip-flopping and not knowing exactly what to do and changing goals. I think that that's something that happens way too often. And, and it creates a lot of work for the advisors, but also it's tough to nail down the goals really and create a plan. And a lot of business owners also think they can do it themselves, right? I mentioned earlier, but some owners are just wired that way. They've built a business and they think they can do everything. So they think, hey, I can do everything and they make mistakes. I'm a little bit biased on this, but I think it's really important that you utilize the advisors and trust them. As I mentioned earlier, when you interview with them, you really want to trust them. They're here for your benefit. You know, They want, want, want to talk to you. They want to present you with the numbers, right? Take out the emotions because it's important. Like you, You've seen this a lot probably in, in an M&A process, put emotions in evaluation and the, the owner wants 100 million, but it's only worth 50. And then you go back and forth, right? I think that's why the advisors are for, and it's truly important that the owners trust people and really bring in advisors, right? It's just important. But I understand the kind of frustration. And also, they've built the business. They, they're very smart people, right? So, so it's tough for them to trust other people, probably. A lot of great wisdom there. Okay. 
with that every day you're sitting there you're listening you're gathering insights reading articles or talking to people in this ecosystem are there any rumors any changes of things to come that you know people should keep on their radar yeah and most of us know last year really there was a lot of conversations around tax rates right and and one of them the the current administration proposed is that the individual tax rate, the top individual tax rate goes up from 37% to 39.6%. And then also, this one is an important one, long-term capital gains and qualified dividends uh, for taxpayers with an adjusted income of more than a million dollars would be taxed at income rate of up to 39.6, which is that ordinary income rate. So So you said a million dollars there? Yeah. So, So again, it, this is for taxpayers with adjusted gross income of more than a million dollars, right? So high income earners. But let's say over that million dollars, they have they have high capital gains. What the administration is proposing, let's let's tax that cap, instead of capital gain, let's tax it at ordinary income rate, which is a lot higher. So those ideas have been floating around since last year, and it, it, it didn't go through. So it's still on people's radar. But that's an important one because it it really and you might have seen this in in the M and A world. You know, if capital gains go up, some business owners might want to sell it earlier because you want to keep the most after taxes. So that's definitely something to watch. They're thinking about really to retrospectively, retro- retrospectively activate the, those taxes, but there's no no clear message yet. So that's something really to to follow and be aware of. Yeah, I'm sure around November we'll start getting a couple of people that say, "Hey, I want to sell my business before the end of this year for tax reasons," and we'll go, "Oh, yeah." End of the year, 30 days. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting last year too when this all started, right? As wealth advisors, we want to be proactive. We want to, if this happens, we're watching the markets, watching the, the tax law changing, reaching out to clients, being proactive. Hey, this might happen. Let's talk about your investments, maybe accelerating some of the sales. And then it didn't really happen. So it's tough. It's tough to anticipate that, right? And, and what, what's really getting passed. Is there any talk about? definition of accredited investors or any here in Silicon Valley, the startup ecosystem, everyone always asks, are you a credit investor? Are you an angel investor? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the SEC wants to tighten those regulations and wanted to, I think right now it's a million dollars in investable assets and income over 200,000, which makes you a credit investor. And, and I think the SEC wants to, to tighten that up a bit due to risk management. But I think, you know, the, the whole industry is more about democratizing interesting investments for more retail investors because it was always reserved for the ultra rich. So I think there's a lot of people that want to keep it or even lower that, that accredited investor minimum. Marcel, what are some of the biggest tax, I guess, mistakes that founders, early employees make? Yeah, yeah. that's That comes up a lot, right? And it's definitely... The biggest issues are on taxation, equity compensation, and then really you want to minimize the tax bill if there's a potential liquidity event. And I want to I want to go through a common issue in that comes up all the time. It's exercising incentive stock options and then triggering alternative minimum tax. That's a word that very spooky and and that can create a large tax surprise. 
so an example would be, I've seen this before. There's a startup employee, uh, she or she makes around $150,000 in salary. And he or she wants to exercise 10,000 shares at the exercise price of a dollar. The current market value of, of the stock is actually at $50 a share. So the IRS wants a piece of that, that $490,000, right? That, that you just exercised because that's a game. So the problem is, is this, it, there's an alternative minimum tax. It's, it's a difficult calculation and just for illustration purposes, want to keep it easy. But so this employee might have a, a really large tax bill, maybe a couple hundred thousand that's actually higher than that salary. And the problem is you can't sell that stock because it's still tied up in the private company. So I've seen a lot that people, you know, making $150,000, $200,000 and they can't even afford the tax bill. So, so that's a prime example where it's really important and educate yourself before you exercise any taxes. It, that's a prime example. It happens all too often. Wait, Marcel, that was pretty interesting right there. This tax bill, these uh, pre-IPO shares and that. What? Well, can you talk a little bit about pre-IPO shares? Can you talk a little about secondaries, what those are, and kind of, kind of the options that maybe some of these early employees, early founders, early investors might actually have? Yeah, I talk a lot about liquidity risk management with clients. I mentioned in the beginning, when you look at business owners, or startup entrepreneurs, uh, investors, or also startup employees, a lot of their wealth is tied up in equity compensation, attracting and keeping the, the best talent, right? But a lot of employees don't understand it fully, as I explained to in, in that example about AMT tax, right? And what I've seen, what happens too, is companies have been staying private a lot longer before going IPO. Last year was a record IPO year. Obviously, there's a lot of market volatility right now. So there hasn't been as many IPOs, but that also means the employee's uh, stock options or equity, they can't sell it because when a company goes IPO, your stock is still locked up for another 180 days. You know, I just looked at some statistics. I think some of those high-flying stocks from last year, those IPOs, some of them are down 70, 80% and, and the employees can't sell. So that's a lot of risk. And so, so educating my clients around the risk is really important because again, a lot of their net worth is tied up in equity um, and some of them, you know, 75%. So it's really important. A lot of people think this is going to happen for sure. And hopefully it will. You work for a startup. It's really exciting. You're building something great and you're really, really excited. But there's also a risk to it. And I think the market right now shows us that a little bit. And you know, when you look at, you know, let's say somebody has 75% in equity or equity options, it's really important that the other 25% of your net worth is not, for example, in cryptocurrency or another high growth asset or liquid assets, right? So that's a lot of the conversations I have is really what are you invested in? Make sure you have the right retirements in place, pay yourself, take advantage of tax advantage accounts, keep some cash for emergencies and don't over leverage yourself. Um, so that's really important. And then secondary market is when we've talked about this before, companies really want to give employees the option to sell, sell some stock. It can take a long time to really liquidate your, your stock. And so there's a couple of options to go through that, which is one is a tender offer. That's driven really by a company. Let's say the company raises another round of funds. There's a portion of the the equity that employees are holding that they can sell to to new investors or existing investors. Lock up some of that liquidity. And there's another thing. It's a, a brokerage market. There's a couple of brokerage markets out there. That's more for we mentioned accredited investors. You know, Sean, you have you have some stock in in X company, and you're like, hey, I need some liquidity for whatever reason. Marcel, I'm an accredited investor. I need some of Sean's stock because I think I really have high conviction and I want pre-IPO exposure. And then those brokerage markets are really matching buyers and sellers. 
to get liquidity or access to investments. And then lastly, there's also institutional funds that are interested in some of those equity um, options for employees. So there's a bunch of options out there and it's important to really discuss them. So what should one do when they get these shares? What, what sh- should the first steps be or what should they know? So when, when you look at equity compensation, there's typically three common types of grants, really. It's restricted stock units, non-qualified stock options, and then also incentive stock options. I think that's the, the, probably the most common one, incentive stock options. And, and when they're issued, they're typically issued when you join a company. And typically also, I see it a lot when people are promoted just to incentivize, right? And the way I want to, you know, education is important. Like I said, the way it works really is they're issued with a vesting schedule. Typically, I see a lot four years and it's something called a one-year cliff. And then it then it vests monthly. So, so an example is like X gets an option grant for 10,000 shares when he or she starts a company with a vesting schedule of four years and a one-year cliff. So nothing vests in the first year. And then after that one year, 2,500 shares vest. And then the rest will will vest monthly for the next 36 months, right? To explain what vesting really means, vesting really means that you now have the opportunity to exercise and own that stock at a predetermined exercise price. Okay, so you have the shares, but you mentioned, I think, a little bit before about selling them, but can you talk about some of the options for pre-IPO transactions? Yeah, yeah. So so tender offers are, I mentioned them briefly, Tender offers, secondary brokerage. I have created a strong network of, of different brokerages and and also institutional funds. So so one of the goals, as I mentioned earlier, it's really risk management around these equity options and exposures. So we really try to help them and really hold hands of our clients to reach out to these these brokerage places and really help them through the transaction. So if I left the company. Do I lose all the shares or can I sell them? Do I still have them? That's tricky. No straight answer. It all depends on contract really, right? I've seen it before. I've seen it that you can, people have left the company. It depends on what's in your contract. And then also, is there any demand for that stock? But it's important to look at your contract, uh, maybe engage a compensation employment lawyer. That's important. We also have a good network for referrals, but but it gets gets a little complicated and it, it depends case by case. Now, I know you're not a lawyer, but I still want to ask, maybe if you're comfortable or not, are there certain terms in your employment agreement or certain things you should ask a lawyer? Or I mean, what type of things should you be a little bit of aware of? Any any key terms, any senses? Yeah, I think in general, what, I, what I've seen is too that selling, it becomes a lot more normal. So a lot of employees actually talk about it. There's a conversation about, hey, I, I, you know, I'm trying to sell my stock. Uh, have you heard? Are we allowed to do that? So that's one thing. A lot of times, you you kind of figure it out as an employee. Then you know, there's another option of just reaching out to the CFO. Like I said, a lot of startup startups are more accommodative to selling your stock. So those are two things. And then lastly, if you don't want to talk to anyone, you don't you don't feel comfortable talk, talking to the CFO or HR. Then you really want to take a look at the the contract. And one thing is the rights of refu- refusal. So when you look at that section. It really shows you, hey, if you can sell the stock or not, or if that the company can actually refuse the, the you refuse you the right to sell the stock. So that's really important. But again, it all depends on also if you're an executive, if you what level you are, what seniority. So it's really important if you're not comfortable asking anyone to to engage with a compensation lawyer. Okay, and then without naming names, 
without naming companies or anything like that, can you share a story or two of someone that you might have worked with or, you know, just a kind of scenario of, you know, who you've helped or what you've done, just so we get a better idea of the whole picture? Yeah, one thing that comes to mind, it's something that I, I'm working on right now with a client. The listeners can relate to this. So basically, it's a young family in the, in the early 30s. The husband works for a startup. The, the startup is a Series E right now. They have a pro, approximately, so, so close to an IPO, who knows what's going on in the market, but it's fairly mature. You know, approximately net worth is about $10 million and $8 million is tied up in company stock. So that's very typical. The other assets, the $2 million is really in 401ks, IRAs, home, and then cash. So that's a typical, typical kind of scenario. And he just sold actually some portion of those stock options in a tender offer. So he had a liquid event. And then also, since he's been there for about five, six years, he has about four different option grants, which makes it a bit complicated. They're all incentive stock options, but they're kind of staggered in a timeline when they vest, exercise price. So there's a lot of complexity and he hasn't exercised any of them. And that's a typical, that's a typical example. We, we see these, these scenarios a lot. And the first discussion I really had with them was like, you know, what are the goals here, right? Like, what do you want to do if a potential windfall happens? And they really mentioned, I think that's a common theme too. They really want to take some time off and spend with the kids. They want to travel more. Another goal I always hear, and this is the same, same with this family, financial freedom. They don't want to work with, for a W-2 anymore. They want to do a consultant role, maybe start their own business. I get that a lot, really. Pay for kids' education, really important. And buy some investment properties. People, people like real estate. Uh, I think people like to invest in it. It's interesting for people. And then they also mentioned impact investing, right? Make, making a difference. So really, after that conversation, we really could map out a plan to achieve these goals. And, and one of the questions I always ask, are you taking full advantage of those tax advantage accounts? Doesn't seem too exciting, right? 401ks and IRAs, but people should use it. It's there for a purpose. And, and it, the tax deferral and compounding returns is really important. And then we typically do an analysis of what a windfall would look like. What, what are this? What if the company goes IPO at stock at X? How much, how much money will you get after, after taxes? What if the price is Y and so forth, right? So we're mapping out a plan of different scenarios and then we adjust. How can we get to those goals we just just achieved? What's possible? What what can we do? Another thing is what's important. I mentioned this earlier, like the taxes on on exercising stock options. And this person in particular has four different grants, so it gets a little complicated. And, and making sure that he doesn't he doesn't pay too much AMT when the exercise. So that was also in the discussion. We also mapped out different scenarios, and then you know simply talking about insurances, insurances, and then also trust and estate planning for the kids. But I think I think the common theme is is here that it's not just investing your money. It's really looking at a scenario, creating a plan. I think that's what they appreciate the most: creating a plan and showing them different scenarios and kind of prepare them for what's happening after a liquid event. That's really the main goal here. And I think people, our clients, appreciate that the most. And then obviously implementing the investing strategies to get them to where they want to be. Marcel, I mean, with, this has been an amazing interview, but we're got, about to wrap it up. What are some key takeaways you think people should should get, people should take with them? And then if anyone wants to find out more about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? I hope this podcast really helped everyone to understand 
that wealth management is not just about investing in the best returns. I, I talk a lot about structuring and planning, and it's really about getting a good advice, unbiased advice to really achieve your goals. Another thing is every dollar on your personal balance sheet has a purpose. As you see, we, we talked a lot about balance sheet, right? And I, I said it balance sheet a lot, a lot, but it's really important. Every per, every dollar on, on your balance sheet has a purpose, and it's important to, to make use of that. It's not just about the asset allocation. It's also important where the assets are located. We talked about the trust structuring, all that good stuff. And another point, it's never too early to engage with advisors and just educate yourself. You know, you don't want to make costly mistakes. Just, just talk to someone. You don't really have to engage with them, but just ask about opinions and am I doing this right? Please take a look at my balance sheet. Please take a look at my investment portfolio. People are happy to help. And if there's really something we can be helpful with, we're happy, we're happy to work with you. If you're in good shape, you're in good shape. You really have those conversations. It, it never hurts. You're always learning something. So, so that's really important. And then lastly, as I said, farther, we're really focused on technology. And I truly believe it's a big differentiator because it's really here to help us be better. We have this really good technology and it's paired with, I believe, good advisors and experts. I think it far exceeds pairing those. It far exceeds that experience that which either can really deliver alone by combining those, the technology and experts. And, and lastly, if you want to get in touch with me, LinkedIn, uh, Marcel Fister, I work at Farther. Then our website is www.farther.com. And my email is marcel at farther.com. Fantastic. We're going to have all the, that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, while you're listening to it, while you're enjoying it, while you're sharing it, please give us a great review on Apple, Spotify, Google, all the platforms that you use. Also, go on YouTube, check out the video there. Check us out on all social media at the Silicon Valley Podcast or my personal Sean Flynn SV. And one last thing, if everyone or anyone out there, if you're looking for an investment banker to help you with your company's acquisition, merger, raising growth capital, or secondaries, as which we talked about in the show today, you know, reach out to me. I connect with me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn SV. Connect with me on all the social media channels. And we look forward to bringing you an amazing episode next week. And also for everyone out there that liked this episode, Marcel is going to be at the June 16th event at San Jose. He's one of the speakers for the event. The link in that we will be posting on our social media channels. So look, look for those. It's going to be amazing half-day summit for mid-market companies. And um, with that, Marcel, I want to thank you for being a guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.